Well, welcome back. We're, uh, we're going to continue our study of Hebrews. Um, I, I heard a, a story of a, of a man and a wife, and they were in a discussion one morning, uh, arguing about who should get out of bed first to go and, and turn on the coffee uh, maker to you know, get that kickstart of Java in the morning. And, uh, and they're going back and forth, you make it, you make it. And finally she says, um, do you know, do you realize in the Bible it says that the husband should get up to make coffee in the, every morning? And, and he's like, what? What do you mean? She, get, here, hands her the Bible, show me. So sure enough, she opens up, first page of Hebrews. He brews. And... Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I am. I am contractually obligated to tell that joke when you tell it, when you do the book of Hebrews. Um, I, I I had to do it, and um, I tried to I tried to wait, but uh, they were on my case. I kept asking, "Have you told the joke yet? Have you told the joke yet?" So, thank you for laughing at least. And um, well, I'm excited about today. Um, Tonight really is going to be the, the, the most important night in our study of the book of Hebrews. Uh, maybe in all of the book of the Hebrews, what we're going to get to uh, right after the break tonight. Um, but to, to kind of get us started, why don't we just review a little bit of where we've come from so far. So the major theme in the book of Hebrews is what? Jesus is better. He is better than anything you can imagine, anything that you want to to challenge Him with. And so therefore, live by faith. Live by trusting in Him to see what He's going to do in and through us. That's the entire message of the book of Hebrews. And so we saw in chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews began to make that argument by making some comparisons between Jesus versus first with the prophets. And how we ought to listen to the prophets back then, how much more now should we listen to this message of Jesus that he shares? Because he's greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. How angels are at best are their servants, they're temporary, they're, they're created by God, but Jesus is God. He is so much better than the angels. And that led into the warning then, uh, which we saw in chapter 2, which is do not neglect this salvation. Don't put it aside. Don't, don't leave it on the shelf and do nothing with it. Um, there are, there's great consequences uh, by doing that. We, we begin to miss out on the power and the grace of Jesus Christ. So do not neglect this salvation. More than just don't neglect it for the, in terms of receiving it as a gift in terms of salvation, but don't neglect the now save, being saved each and every day. And then he went on to explain the last half of chapter 2 then about why Jesus is better and why he came as a man in order to redeem man, to redeem us back to our original purpose, which was to have dominion, to, to have glory, to uh, rule and reign in this world as we trust in Jesus Christ, as we trust in God living in us. And that, that kind of brings us to the end of chapter 2. And in, now we're getting into chapter 3, and he's going to continue on with his, his comparison. So why don't we open up with a word of prayer and we'll see what the uh, Father wants to say to us tonight in the book of Hebrews. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to, to read your word and to study it, to hear from you. My great fear is, Father, though, that this would just be an intellectual exercise something that we just um, understand with our our minds and and tuck away in our knowledge and our intellect. And that's not what I'm hoping for tonight. I pray, Father, that you'll touch our hearts. That we will hear a message from you that will allow us to enter into the freedom and the rest that we have in you. So I invite you, Father, to be the teacher. Because these people will get more of what you say to them through me than what I can say to them. So may we hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, turn to page, I think it's 19 of your, uh, of your notes. 
So verse 3, or verse 1 of chapter 3 then begins with therefore. And it's the, the introduction now, or, or the application of what he's just been talking about, how Jesus is better than the angels and so forth. He says, therefore, holy brethren, to fellow believers, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, we don't need to get worried here about the, the word apostle. Some say, oh, oh, what's he mean by apostle? Does that mean like the Paul is the apostle and so forth? The word apostle just means sent one. And that's what Jesus was. He was sent by God and he's the high priest of our confession. Something that he mentioned earlier on uh, in chapter 2 and he'll mention again in more detail in chapters 5 and 7 when we get to it. We'll talk more about him being our high priest. But he, speaking of Jesus, was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses or just as Moses also was in all his house. So now he's going to lead into this, con- this comparison between Jesus and Moses. Moses being, you know, maybe one of the top two um, uh, historical figures in the nation of Israel. Uh, Right there with Abraham or with David. I mean, he is right at the top when it came to the heroes of the faith for the the Jews. And so he's saying now, let's compare Moses to Jesus. And Jesus is going to come out on top. In verse 3, For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, what we've done, I think, a great mistake we've made in our, in our, our faith, in our Christianity, is we look at the house of God as being a building. I remember Sunday mornings getting up in the morning and my mom, you know, getting me, helped me get dressed. And I always had to put on good fancy clothes. I would never wear these clothes you know, if I had a choice. I never wore them during the week. But I had to get dressed up because why? I was going where? Just going to church. I was going to God's house. And because I'm going to God's house, I've got to dress the part. And, and when you get there, you have to be on your best behavior. You can't run in God's house, right? In fact, you know, sometimes you'd see little kids running and, and you'd, you'd see the, some of the older people just, you know, aghast. <gasps> Do you allow people to run in God's house? And the reality is, it's God's house that's running, Right? See, who is the house of God? We are. We're the temple of God. He does not dwell in temples made by human hands, it says in Acts 17. He dwells in you and I. So the house of God, the mistake we've made as being the house of God, is we make it into this this physical building. And, And God can't be contained in a physical building. He never wanted to be contained in the physical building. He's always wanted to make His abode in you and I. And so we are the house. And Moses was part of that house. But Moses had some authority over the house. He was, he was leading the children of Israel, the house. But Jesus is so much better. Because Moses was still part of the house. Whereas Jesus, he built the house. He's so much greater. So the idea of who's bigger or who's better, the house or the builder, is always the builder. Because the house is from the builder. And so Jesus is better just simply because he's the builder of all things. So in verse 5 then, Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over the house. So again, Moses was faithful. He did a lot of wonderful things. He led the people uh, across the wilderness and he was faithful in those things. But Christ was better because he, he's over the house. And then in verse 6 it says, But Christ is faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm unto the end. What word might be troubling in this verse? If. Right? It's almost like there's a condition here. Almost like now we're, we're reintroducing some of the law into, the, into, the, into the salvation, into our, our performance idea being that if I do well enough, if I have enough faith, if I hold fast our confidence, then I'm part of the house. But that's not what he's saying here. If that's what he was saying, then it would read something, but Christ was faithful as the son over his house, whose house we shall be. If this if was a conditional if, 
If it was on the condition that we held fast our, our confidence, then it would read, whose house we shall be. But it doesn't. It says, whose house we... What tense is that? Present tense. We are the house of God. And this if isn't an iffy if. It's really a since. It's the guarantee. And so what the writer is saying, we are his house since we will hold fast. It's a promise. It's the, it's the guarantee. And remember, I want you to see two things about our faith. One is it's not a one-time thing. It's not when we pray a prayer, we enter in, and we're done. It's an ongoing, continual faith. But it's a faith that will last to the end. It's a guarantee. Because true faith, end, true faith never ends. True faith continues. So the idea that somebody was a Christian and they're not no more, it doesn't, doesn't add up. Because if they were, they would hold fast. If they weren't, then they would never hold fast. And that goes back to what we talked about the first week when we were together with the, the four different soils. And how soil number two, it seemed to look good. It seemed to bear fruit, but there was no what? There was no root. The heart was never penetrated. And so the person never was saved. Whereas the other two, we saw roots... And one had fruit that never reached maturity, where the other brought forth much fruit. And we see there, they hold fast even until the end. So we see Jesus is better than Moses. Well, the next person up on this list is going to be Joshua. And the writer of of Hebrews is going to uh, address the issue of Joshua kind of stretched out. Uh, He's going to be touching in on it a little bit here and there. From beginning in verse 7 all the way to chapter 4 and verse 13, he's going to explain why Jesus is better than Joshua. Specifically, he's going to talk about how Joshua led Israel from the wilderness into the promised land of Canaan. And he's going to use that as as a picture or a backdrop for us. Because the journey of the children of Israel across leaving Egypt, across the wilderness into Canaan, is of great importance to us. It's a, it's a type. It's a shadow. It gives us some understanding as to, as to what the Christian life looks like. And so what we've done with Canaan now, we have, to, oh, sorry, we have to understand what does Canaan or the promised land represent? What does our, our hymns and our hymnology talk about and describe Canaan? It describes it as heaven. We sing songs about the day we're going to cross the Jordan River. Oh, what a day that will be when we're in that sweet by-and-by place. The problem is, if, that's, if Canaan is a picture of heaven, I don't think heaven looks so good anymore. Think about when the children of Israel got to Canaan. Who was there? Giants, all the Canaanites and the Jebusites and Hittites and all the otherites that were there. They were, they were occupying the land. When you and I get to heaven, is the enemy going to occupy heaven? They had a fight for heaven. Or sorry, they had a fight for Canaan. Are we going to fight for heaven? No. They ended up sinning in Canaan. Well, we sin in heaven. And they eventually lost Canaan. Will we lose heaven? No. So Canaan's not a picture of heaven. Canaan instead, as we'll see later on in chapters 3 and 4, is that it's really a picture of the abundant life in Christ. The rest that Jesus promises us. This Sabbath rest. It's about the life that we can have here and now. That's really what Canaan represents. So, Canaan is a picture of the rest or the abundant life in the Christian life. It's not something that we will enter one day when we die, but it's something that is available to us today, right now. And that's what it's going to make tonight, I think, so important. So Canaan, though, was insufficient compared to the rest that God offers, and Jesus offers a better rest. And the reason being is because they lost that Canaan. They, they They had a fight for Canaan. But Jesus is so much better. It's a rest that goes on and on and on. It's an eternal rest. And it's available for us to enter in today. Does that make sense? Any questions on on Canaan as as a picture of 
abundant life. So, Raj, you're basically saying we can lose that rest. We can. We can, yeah. In fact, we do. <laughs> we do. And, uh, and I'll explain that later on. So let's do a quick history lesson of Israel as they leave Egypt. So here's a, a map, and we've got Egypt over here with the Nile and the Nile Delta, and, uh, and the Red Sea is here. And, uh, and what happened was they, they crossed the Red Sea somewhere. Uh, they imagined that Mount Sinai is somewhere down here, um, and they, they crossed the wilderness, and eventually they get to Israel, which is, which is up here. Now, let's take a look at some of the, the, the highlights of what happened. In, in the book of Exodus. Uh, what we read in Exodus chapter 7 to 12, we read about the Passover and the ten plagues. How God used those ten plagues to, um, to strike fear, not in the, just in the Egyptians, but also in all the surrounding countries. Because by the time they got to Canaan, they had heard what had gone on, what God had done with the Egyptians. And that sent, uh, sent terror in the hearts of all these people that they were frightened of the children of Israel because they knew God was on their side. Um, but it also was a way to, to punish the, the pharaohs for what they did and how they, they treated the children of Israel. And then we see that there's the Passover, and the Passover was the final plague. It was the, where the oldest in each uh, household was, was, uh, was killed unless they put the, the blood of a lamb on the doorpost. And so they left Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea where we see that, you know, that wonderful image of Charlton Hess, I mean, Moses raising up his arms and, and, and the, the water splitting and the entire nation of Israel just crosses on dry land. Only to be chased by Pharaoh's army, which God then waited at the right moment for all the Israelites to be off out of the, out of the Red Sea and the army to now be within the, the, uh, the dry land to then just have the water crushing down on them utterly destroying the, the, the greatest nation on earth. I mean, that, that's just remarkable when we think about that. So their army was, was wiped out, and it was all rescued by who? Who did the work? It was all God, right? They, they didn't have to lift a single sword. They didn't have to fight a single battle. It was God who was providing for them. It was God who rescued them. In fact, when they walked out of Egypt, they ended up plundering the Egyptians. The Egyptians gave them all their gold and jewels and diamonds and, and fancy clothes and animals and said, Get out! Get out! We Just leave! We don't want you anymore because of all the plagues they had. And then they get to a place called Mara. I'm probably not saying that right. Next is 15. And, and Mara is literally bitterness. And so they came to a place, a lake full of bitter water. And they were thirsty, and they were dying of thirst, and they wanted to drink something. And so what God did is He, he changed the water from bitter to pure, to sweet. And so they were able to drink the, the sweet water. In Exodus 16, we see that God then began to prevent, provide food for them each day. He sent bread from heaven. And every day, all they needed to do was go out and collect what they would need for that day. In fact, all they could was collect for that day. And if they had any extra, what would happen to it overnight? It would spoil. And what God's doing here is He's teaching them to trust in them, trust in God for how long? For the day, for the moment. He's teaching them to trust. He's teaching them to depend upon Him each and every day. You see, the great temptation probably was, well, I'll only go out and gather everything I need for a week. Or gather everything up I need for a month. And we just begin to store it up, and then we wouldn't need Him until we eventually run out. And then there'd be other people who would store it up and then go and sell it to other people because they can make a quick profit off it. And... And that wasn't what God was interested in. He was looking to teach them. So if you got a lot, then you had what you needed. And if you got a little, you had what you needed. He was teaching them to depend upon Him. But what did they begin to do? In fact, what had they been doing each step of the way? Complaining. They had murmured. I mean, 
when they leave um, uh, Egypt and then they're, they're, they feel like they're stuck at the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army's on the other side, they begin to complain, why did you bring us out here to die? Were there no graves in Egypt that we had to come out to the wilderness and die? Was that the point? When they're rescued from Pharaoh's army and then they get to the Tamara, they begin to complain there. We got no water. We got no water. Then they get some bread uh, when they start complaining that they're hungry. And then they begin to complain about the bread. Oh, we're bored. Bread again. Really? So God then sends them some quail, some meat. And he does the same thing every day. Gather what you need. No more, no less. And that's what you get. But they continue to complain. Complain, complain, complain. And then they get to, uh, to a place called Rephidim, and where God then provided water from a rock in Exodus 17. And I want you to see here, what God has been doing is He's been providing for them every step of the way. Looking after them and caring for them and, and making sure they had what they needed. Why is that so important? Well, in 1 Corinthians 10... Paul does a bit of a commentary on the whole story of Israel. And he says in verse 6, Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they craved. So that we would not live as they lived. We would learn from them. They become the great example for us. In verse, uh, verse 11, he says, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they are written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So they're the lesson for us. Now, if you turn the page, you'll see a, a, bit, a handout or a diagram, I guess. And I, I include this more for your own information, more so than anything else. But, um, but it's an interesting picture, I think. If you were to, to follow the, the, the journey of the Israelites from bondage and the ten plagues and the Passover in this place of Egypt, which is, you know... Parallel to the unbeliever, to, to when we were in bondage to sin, to sin, slaves of sin, and they crossed the Red Sea. Um, and, and you can begin to uh, compare these with um, the New Testament truths of our journey, where we leave Egypt as sinners, we come into the wilderness, and then eventually we come into the, the land of promise, the land of Canaan, where we experience the fullness of God's life, the fullness of His grace. And uh, I include that with you more just for your own benefit, um, if you want to do your own study sometime on that. But there's one story that I want to, I want to zero in on. And the reason being is because the, the writer of Hebrews is going to refer to it. And that's the story of Massa and Meribah, found in Exodus 17. So if you want to go back to page 19. So they, along their journey, they came to this place, Massa and Meribah. That's what it, it was renamed. It originally was called a place called Rephidim, which literally means oasis or, or a place of rest. So they're traveling. 2.5 million Jews are, are wandering across this wilderness. They're about 18 months approximately into their journey. And they get to this place called Rephidim, a place of rest. And what do they begin to do? What have they been doing the whole trip? Complain. Complain. They're kind of like little kids, right? Anyone gone on a long distance trip with little kids? Are we there yet? You know, how much further? I'm bored. You know, and, and they're, they're just going on and on and on, right? If they're Jim's kids, turn the music down, Dad. I mean, they're just, they're, they're whining and they're complaining, right? They're murmuring. And so they begin to ask for water. And now the problem wasn't that they asked for water. Uh, let me, in fact, I'll read the verses to you and, and we'll see how it, how it all um, squares out. So in Exodus 17, verse 1, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses, saying, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now, it wasn't, wasn't that they were asking for water, but it was their whole attitude behind it. It was the, the approach that they took it. 
you owe it to us. And you're just trying to kill us. What kind of lousy person are you, Moses? And they quarreled with Moses. They fought with Moses. And so Moses was commanded by God to strike a rock. And that's significant because in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul lets us know that rock is a picture of who? Jesus Christ. That, that striking of the rock was the crucifixion of his son. In fact, later on, Moses makes the mistake when they can begin to complain for water again. And this time God says to speak to the rock. But Moses says, I know how to handle this. He grabs his staff and he struck the rock. And God was so determined to protect this illustration, this example, this type for us, that he says, you only need to strike the rock once. After that, speak to it. Because Jesus needs to only die how many times? Once. Once and for all. He doesn't need to die every time you sin. He's not dying. He's not still on the cross. He has died once and for all. It's taken care of. And because of Moses' disobedience here and God's willingness to protect the type, Moses wasn't allowed to enter into the promised land as a result. That's how seriously God was trying to protect this, this illustration for us. So he struck the rock, a picture of Christ being crucified for us. But they did not believe that God would provide. Because in verse 7, what they say is, um, so verse 5 and 6, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff, which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he made sure that they were there to witness it. To show that God's looking after them. But he named the place Massa and Meribah. Massa and Meribah mean quarreling and temptation or testing. So what they've done is they've quarreled and they've tempted with God. And their attitude was, is the Lord really among us? So they've renamed the place Massa and Meribah because the quarrel of the sons of Israel. And because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Does he really care about us? Is He really here? After all God had provided for them, they still did not trust Him to give them what they required. I mean, think about what they witnessed. Think about what they experienced. And yet they still question, can God look after us? Is He really with us? Does He really care? Now, I tell you all that story in more detail because... What's going to happen now, when we get to Hebrews 3 and verse 7, he says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear His voice, and he's quoting now a psalm, Psalm 95, where, where David is reciting uh, or um, recalling to mind the story of the children of Israel. Not just at Meribah and Massa, but also later on when they got to the Jordan River and they refused to go in because they did not believe they did not trust and so he says today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial of the wild in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years therefore i was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they do not know my ways and as i swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest So he's saying, learn from them. Learn from their illustration. What happened to them in his example, and it's written to us that we might learn. And we come now to the second warning in the book of Hebrews, which is do not miss out on the rest of God. Do not harden your hearts and therefore not believe him and miss out on his rest. Miss out on the abundant life today. Note what he's saying. Today, if you hear my voice. Today, if you hear what I'm saying. Verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you with an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another, day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't harden your heart. Instead, believe in Him. Trust in Him. And if you don't, you will miss out. 
you will miss out on the, on the, on the rest. So who is this, who's the intended audience for this warning? Well, verse 14, For we have become partakers of Christ. If really a sins, we hold fast the beginning of our assurance from until the end. And while it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses. So he's showing the, the, the picture here, the type. It wasn't the people in Egypt. It was the people who came out of Egypt. It was the believers that did not believe. It was his own people that did not trust in him. And with whom was he angry with for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? This is a tremendous warning for you and I. Because just like the Egyptians leaving, or sorry, the Israelites leaving Egypt, we have left Egypt. We have left sin. But now the warning, do not harden your hearts today. So it's not just to anyone in particular, it's to us in particular. To you and I. And then in verse 18, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? This is God's way of saying, I promise. I, um, I tell my little girls something every time they, they, they disobey, and I, I'm drilling into their heads, and I'm hoping they get it. And I say time and time again, life is about choices. And choices have consequences. So make good choices. It's kind of cute, actually, because I get them to finish it, especially with my, young, or my second youngest, Bella. Because I say, life is about choices. <laughs> and choices have consequences. <laughs> so make good choices. <laughs> but I repeat it, and I repeat it, and I repeat it, because it's true. If we harden our heart towards God, we've made a choice. And choices have consequences, good or bad. And that's not a good choice. And so if we're disobedient to God, we will face the consequences of that choice. Yes, He'll love us. Yes, we're still in the family. But there are still consequences to those choices. So do not harden your hearts. Do not miss out on this. What's He warning against then? Verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you with an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now let's understand these words here. Evil isn't so much um, wicked. If, if it was, there would be a different word that the, uh, the author of Hebrews would have used. Instead, the word that he used is more um, sick. In fact, it's the, it's the word that we get pornography from. It's a twisted, it's distorted, it's, it's, um, it's ill, really what it is. And so what he's saying is, if any one of you have an evil or sick or, or derelict, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now, falls away immediately gives what kind of a picture? Losing your salvation. But this is a lousy translation. In fact, it's not falls away. Literally, the word here is stand. It's stand apart from. It's not kind of falling from grace as that, that picture in our mind often comes to, to, to the, or the image that comes to our mind. Instead, it's this idea of standing away from, standing apart from. If we could kind of paraphrase this verse, it would be careful that none of you have a sick or derelict, untrusting heart that stands away independent of God. That's the warning. Don't try to do life on your own. Don't try to make it in your own strength and your own power. Don't stand apart from Him. Stand united with Him. It's one of the glories of the New Testament, the New Covenant. We are now in Christ and He is in us. We have been united with Him. We are one. So why would you try to stand away from Him? Why would you try to live life on your own terms? Verse 19, and they were not able to enter because of unbelief. And so what he's warning is, you will miss out. You will not be able to enter in to the rest of God. So what are the results then? In verse, chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, Therefore let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith 
and those who heard. So they heard the good news, just like you and I have, but it was of no profit to them. There was of no value to them because it was not united with faith. They didn't trust. They didn't actually use it. They had it. It was theirs. It was available to them, but they let it drift past. They neglected their salvation. What you'll see here is these warnings are all connected. They're all different shadings of the same idea, which is warning against unbelief, warning against not trusting in Him. And in verse 6, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, He again fixes a day, today, saying through David, After so long a time, just as it has been said before, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. I find that so amazing that God says, you have another chance. And when's that chance? Today. So if you've rejected it up to this point, reject it no longer. Enter in today. Receive this gift today. It's available to us right now. Psalm 106, verse 13. Again, another psalm written on uh, on the children of Israel. says, They soon forgot His works, and they waited not for His counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. Life is about choices. Choices have consequences. And I can think of no sadder thing than God giving them what they wanted, which was independence. And He pleaded with them, and He pleaded with them, and then He says, okay, you want it, you got it. And He sent them the request, which was the leanness of their soul. That just breaks my heart. There's an emptiness in that. It's a it's a very sad and depressing life. Um, that's that's from the King James Bible. Um, I want to share what what another translation says. In verse 15, so he gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease among them. They were sick. They were ill. That was the condition of their soul. A wasting disease. You you imagine somebody who is dying of some horrible disease. That's what these people were. And it's because they chose that. They chose that when they chose to live life apart from God. So how does this warning apply to you and I today? What's the big deal? I mean, that was them. What about us? Well, I think it it manifests itself in two different forms. And one is this idea that believing that God is not enough. I um, I'm always marveled. I I shouldn't be at this point in uh, in the number of people that have counseled and seen this, but I always marvel when I work with someone and I get them to see that what they're doing is they're looking for life in someone or somewhere other than God. And they they come to that conclusion themselves, and they agree with me, and they say that's right, that's what I'm doing, and they declare that God is not enough. And when I hear the words pass over their lips, I'm always shocked that a Christian would believe that. That somebody who who has professed faith in Christ 
in God, the almighty creator of all things, would then declare that he isn't sufficient. He's not enough. There's got to be more. Whether it be in a spouse, in a family, in a child, in a job, in a reputation, in a health, in finances. But God is not enough. And for every person that says it verbally, there are probably 10 to 20, if not 100 times, the people who are doing it in practice. Who would declare with their lips that God's enough, but with their actions declare the opposite. And so what do they begin to do? Well, God has brought them to a place of rest, of them. When He brought us into Christ. He is that place of rest. Just like the children of Israel, when they got to Rephidim, we murmur and complain. I don't have enough. I don't have enough happiness. I don't have enough joy. So I need to go get it. God hasn't provided enough to me. I'm lacking. And so I need to get a better job, or I need to have better clothes, or a better house, or a better car, or better electronic toys, or a better family, or better church. And we're always looking for something else, because when I get that something else, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be satisfied. And then we complain and we murmur with what we got. And we don't believe that He's enough. We don't truly believe that He can satisfy what we're looking for. And so we want God to meet our needs our way and, our, and on our schedule. And we quarrel with Jesus and we test Him. Just like the children of Israel did. And in essence, we don't trust Him to provide. I remember um, when I uh, was applying for a mortgage, uh, my mortgage broker, you know, had to get all your personal information and, you know, how much money you got in the bank and your paycheck and how many hairs you have on your head and how you sleep in bed and all your that information they needed to get. And then they would submit that to see if you were approved or not. Well, I, I live on support. People donate to this ministry and that's how I get paid. And and this mortgage broker, he took that back to the people, the you know actuaries, the mathematical people, and they looked at this and they said, literally, this is what this is what my mortgage broker came back to me. She said, That's crazy. Who lives like that? Who lives like that dependent on, on a paycheck that you don't know if it's coming in? And the reality is, everybody. Everybody lives in that same position. Because you don't know what tomorrow or even today holds. You could lose your job as easily as I could lose my support. Just like that. The same person that provides my support provides your salary, your job. And you think, well, I, I don't have a job anymore. I'm living off a pension. Well, if you're still thinking that's a safe bet, then let me remind you what happened a couple years ago. And how quickly that sand shifted and we discovered it wasn't very safe. God's the one that provides for everything. And money, as hard as I am to learn this lesson, is the simplest thing for Him to provide. He's far more interested in providing the substantial things we need in this world. Like love, and acceptance, and worth, and security, companionship, a sense of belonging. He's the one that provides that. But our attitude is, is He really among us? 
Is he really for me? I know, I know he rescued me from Egypt and he saved me from Pharaoh and he provided the, the, turned the bitter water into good water, into fresh water, and he's given us the, ma- the, the manna and the quail and the food, but is he really, really among us? Is he really here? Does he really care for me? Does he really care about me? Absolutely. Absolutely He cares about you. He gave up everything to have you. Was it just so that you would be saved to be miserable? That you would be rescued from Egypt to die here in the wilderness? No. But do we really believe that He's enough? Do we really know that? And if we don't enter into that rest we'll begin to wonder, is he enough? The other way this manifests, and often one leads into the other, is we begin to trust in ourselves. We begin to trust in our own resources and our own abilities. And so we're grateful for all that God has done, past tense, but now the rest is up to us. Now it's up to you and I to make life work. And so we live as if Jesus is still dead, or at best, living apart from us. Meaning we're all alone here. Either He died, and that was great that He died for us, but He doesn't really need to rise again. Or if He did, He's now way over in heaven, which is somewhere far, far away, because it's really expensive to call there. And so He's left us. And we're all alone. We have all these problems, all these things that we're up against. And whose responsibility is now to face that? Me. By my lonesome. And our attitude here is, we don't trust Him to now live through us, or to live in us. Because we have the same lie, is God really among us? Is God really here? Is He really alive in me? I mean, how does Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and God all dwell in me? Is He really among me, us? Or do I have to do life on my own? And it gets really frustrating when He doesn't show up the way we want Him to show up or as fast as we want Him to show up. Because we want Him to show up when? Now, and he says, wait. That four-letter word of Christianity, wait. But we want him now. And we want him to do it now. And we want him to rescue us now. And if he doesn't, then we take matters into our own hands. How many people have seen the movie um, Prince Caspian? One of the Chronicles of Narnia movie. Um, I'm going to play a clip from, uh, from the movie here. Uh, it's it's the scene where um, the the four children and uh, and Prince Caspian are kind of planning what do they do next? What do they do now? They're they're being assaulted by this king Miraz, I think his name is, and and they're not sure what to do, how to handle it. And um, and it's interesting where it takes place. The conversation is on the stone table. And for those that have read the books and, and, or watched the movies, the stone table is a picture of the cross. It's where Aslan Jesus, the lion, died on that stone table to rescue uh, and, um, Peter. Not Peter. Uh, no, the other kid, the other boy. I can't remember his name. Edmund, thank you. To rescue Edmund when he had sinned. And so it's that picture of Jesus dying for you and I. So they're having this conversation Literally at the cross. I want you to keep that in the backdrop. So let's watch the clip. He must know what he's doing. I think it's up to us now.
only a matter of time. Mraz's men and war machines are on their way. That means those same men aren't protecting his castle. What do you propose we do, Your Majesty? We need we to get ready for it. Our only hope is to strike them before they strike us. But that's crazy. No one has ever taken that castle. There's always a first time. We'll have the element of surprise. But we have the advantage here. If we dig in, we could probably hold them off indefinitely. I, for one, feel safer underground. Look, I appreciate what you've done here. But this isn't a fortress. It's a tomb. Yes, and if they're smart, the Telmarines will just wait and starve us out. We could collect nuts. Yes, and throw them at the Telmarines. Shut up. I think you know where I stand, sire. If I get your troops in, can you handle the guards? Or die trying, my liege. That's what I'm worried about. Sorry? Well, you're all acting like there's only two options. Dying here, or dying there. I'm not sure you've really been listening, Lou. No, you're not listening. Or have you forgotten who really defeated the White Witch, Peter? I think we've waited for Aslan long enough. We've waited for him long enough. It's up to us now. We take matters into our own hands because this belief is God really among us. And what we do is we don't trust Him. We don't enter into what He has done and we trust in our own strengths, our own abilities and we make a mess of things. Not just around us, to those around us, but even to our own being. We experience that wasting disease, that leanness of our soul. And the worst thing that God could ever do is give us what we want. We cry out for independence, and He says, okay. And He gives it to us. So the warning is, don't miss out on this rest. Don't harden your heart. The choice you make, it's something you choose to do. So instead, enter in. Enter into His rest. And that's what we're going to talk about after the break. Entering in. How do we enter in? What does that rest look like? And that's what's going to make the, what we talk about after the break so important. This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.